The scripture for this morning's sermon is from John chapter 17, verses 6 through 12. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's pray now and ask God to help us. Lord Jesus, your prayer reveals so many glorious things, and we need your help, Lord. In our flesh, it is impossible for us to go where you want to take us this morning. But with you, all things are possible. And so I pray that you draw near to us now. I pray that you'd take us by the hand. And I pray that you would take us to where you want to go. I pray that we would be willing to lay down our lives this morning. I pray that we'd be willing to lay down our expectations of what church was supposed to be about this morning. I pray that we would lay aside the cares and concerns of our lives, things that you care about in our lives for sure, but I pray that for now we'd lay them aside so that we can follow where you want to go. Oh, please, Jesus, come now and by your words do a great work in our lives through the Holy Spirit and for what you will do, Lord, for what you reveal will reveal, and for the joy that you will grant to us today, we give you our thanks and praise in your mighty and merciful and majestic and matchless name, amen. Last week we began a five-week journey through John 17, which is one of the highest points in all of Scripture. Here, Jesus prays at length to his Father in the hearing of his disciples, and he reveals things about his nature and the nature of his relationship with the Father and the nature of the Father's love for him that are frankly stunning and potentially life-transforming. Here in these words, Jesus reveals things to us about the intentions he has for those who belong to him that are breathtaking, beloved, awe-inspiring, and have the potential of changing our lives. Here, Jesus helps us to see the relationships between several key things that are among the most important things in all of life. And please look with me at verse 13 where we see the ultimate aim of Jesus in this prayer. There Jesus says in verse 13, but now, Father, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is not just any joy he's talking about but it's his very joy that he wants to give to us. And he doesn't want to just give it to us in a small measure. He wants to give it to us in a full measure. He wants us to experience the height and depth and width and breadth of his joy. 
In as much as it concerns those who belong to Jesus, beloved, this is the stated aim of his prayer. And my prayer, the cry of my heart has been that we will open our mouths wide and receive from him everything that he has to give to us today and in the coming weeks. Last week, we saw that Jesus began his prayer by praying for himself, and he asked the Father for just one thing. He said in verse 1 and in verse 5, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. And we saw that Jesus expected the Father to glorify him by first lifting him up on the cross, and then by lifting him up in the resurrection, and then by lifting him up in the ascension where he would go to the right hand of the Father and rule and reign as the king and high priest of heaven and earth forever and ever and ever. We saw that the love for the Father, of the Father for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father is the center of the center of all things. We saw that this is the heart of the heart of the Holy of Holies. And more to the point for us, We saw that this is the center of the fountain of the joy that Jesus longs to give to us, beloved. As I said last week, joy is a fruit. It's a fruit of other things. And Jesus doesn't want to just give us the fruit. He wants to take us by the hand and escort us right to the heart of where that fruit comes from. He wants us to be enfolded into the roots so that the fruit will be part of our lives. So know again how I pray how I pray that we will let Jesus do this work in us because our joy is right here and the fullness of our joy will always be right here. This week, we're gonna listen along as Jesus begins to pray for his disciples and I pray that he'll help us to grasp the height and depth and width and breadth of the things that he has to say for us. So now, let's allow Jesus to take us by the hand and guide us from this room here into that upper room in Jerusalem and from the upper room in Jerusalem into the very holy of holies. Let's now do our best to put aside every distraction and just listen as carefully as we can to the Lord our God. Lord Jesus, I wanna pray just for a moment again that you would help us now. I pray that you would help us to focus, Lord. In our spirit we are willing, but in our flesh we are so weak. And so I ask you now to take us by the hand and guide us to where You want to take us in your holy name, we pray. As Jesus turned his attention from himself toward his disciples, he prayed this in verse six. He said, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The word here for manifest simply means to reveal something or to make something known. And so Jesus was confidently declaring in the presence of his Father that he had revealed to his disciples the name of his Father. And in that culture, to know a person was to know their way of thinking. To know a person was to know their affections. To know a person was to, to know their intentions for life in this world. In other words, to know a person's name was to know that person. And so again, Jesus was claiming that he had succeeded in leading his disciples to know the Father and to know him in truth. And while they had a part to play in this process, which we'll see in a moment, Jesus had the decisive part in the process. Jesus took the decisive action. Beloved, the reason that the people of God know God is because Jesus manifests the name of the Father to them. Now to help us understand that his preaching and teaching didn't have this effect on everyone who heard him or everyone who hears his word preached today, Jesus specified 
that he was talking about those whom the Father had given him out of the world. These people had once belonged to the world, but when the time was right, they heard the word of God preached, and when they heard the word of God preached, something in their heart awakened, something in their mind awakened, and they believed, and they received Jesus' words, and they left everything to follow him. These precious souls belonged to the Father long before the Father sent the Son into the world, and these precious souls were given to the Son by the Father long before the Son ever came into the world. And the thing that identified these souls to Jesus, the thing that distinguished these souls from everyone else in the world, is that when they heard the words of the Father pouring through Jesus, they received those words and kept those words. Father, they have kept your words. This is what distinguished them, beloved, from the rest of the world. And because this was so, Jesus continued in verses seven through eight and prayed this. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Now if you're reading this whole story carefully, the first part of verse seven is a little bit surprising given some things the disciples had just said to Jesus and a, and a question that Jesus asked of the disciples. So if you look back to chapter 16, verse 29, here's what they said specifically. The disciples said, ah, Jesus, now you are speaking plainly and you're not using figurative speech. Now we know that, all, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. But Jesus answered them and said, do you now believe? Now that's a piercing question, beloved. And in the context of their conversation, I think that we should hear his question as a, a challenge to their bold assertion that they now understood everything they needed to understand and that they now believed all that they needed to believe. I do think Jesus was trying to humble them. I do think Jesus was trying to tame them. But it's important for us to understand that Jesus was not calling into question the heart of their claim. That they did now see things about God and they did now believe. They did now have a knowledge about the relationship between Jesus and God the Father, and they did now believe. Of course they didn't know everything they needed to know. Of course they didn't understand all the, the contours of Trinitarian theology and the relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Of course they did not have an exhaustive knowledge of God. And we don't have an exhaustive knowledge of God, do we? But beloved, these people had a true knowledge of God. What we need to understand is here, Jesus Christ is affirming the faith of his disciples in the presence of his Father. Jesus is advocating for them, beloved. In a sense, Jesus has taken them with him into the Holy of Holies and said, Father, they believe. Father, they have seen. Father, they have received the things that you gave me to say to them. Father, they understand something at least of the relationship between you and between me. Father, these are disciples indeed. These are believers indeed. These have received eternal life and they will have eternal life forever. He's advocating for them, beloved. He's commending them in the presence of the Father. Now, how did the disciples come to this place? How did they come to a place where they understood in truth that Jesus had been sent from the Father to do the works of the Father? How did they come to the place where they knew, even though they didn't understand all the details, 
that there was something real special about this guy, so much so that it, it was worth dropping everything in their lives to follow him and to gain him. Well, I think Jesus answers this question in verse eight. First of all, Jesus says that he gave the disciples the words that the Father had given to him. Please get this straight in your mind. The Father gave words to Jesus. Jesus gave words to them. This is how they came to know the Father in truth. I think that there is a sense in which the Father gave words to Jesus before he even came into the world. And there is a sense in which the Father gave words to Jesus day by day as Jesus sought the Father and prayed without ceasing. As Jesus talked to the Father about everything at all times. There was an unceasing communion between the Father and the Son. And the primary means of that communion was the words of the Father to the Son and the words of the Son back to the Father. I'm sure that before Jesus came into the world, he got the overall point of the gospel. Of course he understood what he was here to do. But there is a sense in which, beloved, he received the words of the Father through daily intimate interaction with the Father. And in this way, he delivered to his disciples all that the Father had given to him. And I just think we need to take this in. He's not someone who spoke out of his own heart. He's not someone who spoke out of his own mind. He's not someone who made up the things that he said. Jesus faithfully humbled himself before the Father, received from the Father, delivered those words to the disciples, and in this way he revealed the Father to the disciples. In this way he glorified his Father. He obeyed him, he did not add to his words, he did not subtract from his words, he did not fear to proclaim his words no matter the cost or the consequence. Jesus did everything that the Father gave him to do and said every single thing that the Father gave him to say. And this is the primary reason why the disciples came to know the Father in truth. Jesus manifested the Father through the words of the Father. And then second, you'll see toward the second part of verse eight, that when the disciples heard the Father's words, they received those words, they believed those words, and in this way they came to know in truth that Jesus came from the Father as the one who was sent by the Father. And somehow, again, they didn't understand all the details, but somehow in the depths of their heart they just had the instinct to know that he was not just another prophet, but that he was the prophet. He was not just a, another one sent from God, but he was the long-awaited one who had been sent from God to be the final prophet among all the prophets. Somehow they knew that the purposes and promises of God were being fulfilled in Jesus, even if they understood almost nothing about the details, at least at that time. The disciples, again, did not have an exhaustive knowledge of Jesus, but they had a true knowledge of him because they received his words and they embraced those words, beloved. They received those words, they embraced those words. This is how they came into a knowledge of God. And as Jesus was doing in verse seven, so again he's doing in verse eight, beloved, he is advocating for his disciples in the presence of the Father. He is confirming in their hearing, Father, they received your words, they believed your words, they have come to know through your words who you are and who I am. Of course they have much growing to do, but these are disciples indeed, these are believers indeed, these have eternal life indeed. Oh, the joy, beloved, of those who hear their Savior advocating for them in the presence of God the Father. Now before we move on, I, I wanna 
pause to emphasize here the place of the word of God and the life of the church and in the life of his people. I want to just emphasize again that the primary way Jesus reveals the Father to the disciples is by proclaiming, explaining, and applying the words of the Father. Jesus did not reveal the Father through ecstatic experiences. Jesus did not reveal the Father by leading his disciples into ascetic experiences like taking them up into the mountains and going into caves and fasting for a hundred days and trying to abuse their body, somehow thinking that this would get them to a, a purer knowledge of God. Jesus Christ did not reveal the Father through mysterious sayings like so many Eastern religions that seem to love to say ambiguous things and just leave ambiguous things ambiguous forever. Jesus did not reveal the Father through his personal charisma or the force of his personality. Jesus revealed the Father to the ones the Father gave him through the words of the Father. Then his miracles, his acts of mercy, his various revelatory acts simply served to confirm his words. And if you want to look on your own time later at Hebrews 2.4, you will see that that's exactly the argument that is there. There is a place for the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, but their main function is this. They confirm the word of God pouring through Jesus Christ into the world. The way, even to this day, that Jesus Christ reveals to the Father, to those who have been given to him, is by the words of the Father. It's by the proclamation, explanation, and application of God's words. To this day, every act of power that proceeds from the hand of God, either in nature or by way of miracles or by way of mercy, every one of those acts is designed to confirm the truthfulness of his words. Beloved, please don't think of your time in the word of God as just another Christian chore that you have to complete. Think of your time in the Word of God as the time in which Jesus reveals the Father to you through the Father's words. When you open up the Bible, Jesus' aim is to show the Father to you. When you open up the Bible, Jesus' aim is to bring you into a more profound knowledge of the person of the Father and into a more intimate relationship with the Father. As you open up the words of God, Jesus means to bring you deeper into the joy of God through what is revealed there. Please don't make a chore out of your time in the Bible, but see it as the primary way that Jesus reveals himself. And then also as a church, we just have to understand that no matter what the trends of the day among the evangelical church, the way Jesus Christ reveals the Father is through the plain preaching of the Word. As Paul said, we're not going to make mincemeat of the Word like so many do, but through the plain proclamation of Jesus, we will commend Jesus to people's consciousness and call on them to believe. Oh, beloved, Jesus reveals the Father through the words of the Father. I pray that we'll take this deep, deep into our hearts and understand the place of his word in his kingdom. Having confidently affirmed his disciples in the presence of the Father, Jesus continued in verses 9 and 10. He said, Father, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. While Jesus has a, a kind of love for the whole world, 
he has a special and eternal love for those who are his own. Even as his father constantly pours mercy on the world. Do you remember in Matthew chapter five where Jesus said, listen, the father loves his enemies because he pours rain upon them, he gives life to them, he pours mercy upon mercy upon undeserving and rebellious souls who hate God. And yet the father only lavishes his saving love upon those who belong to him. And in the same way, Jesus has a kind of love and a kind of mercy for every single soul in this world, but he has a special and eternal and covenantal love for those who belong to him. And he was saying to the Father in the hearing of the disciples, I am praying for them. Of course there's a way in which Jesus intercedes for the world, but here he is laser focused on those who belong to him and he is praying for them. And the only reason he gives to justify this kind of limitation of his prayer is the words at the end of verse nine where he says, Father, for they are yours. In other words, Father, I'm praying for those who belong to you. I'm praying for those whom you have given to me. I'm praying for those upon whom you have set your steadfast love forever and ever. And therefore, Jesus continued in verse 10 and said to the Father, in the hearing of the disciples, all who are mine are yours and all who are yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Everyone who belongs to me, Father, they belong to you, because everyone who belongs to you, you gave to me. And in the lives of these people, I am glorified. Now, beloved, verse 10 is another example of why we have to work our way slowly and carefully through this prayer. Because while everything Jesus says in this prayer is profound in itself, The the last phrase at the end of verse 10 is simply stunning. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's possible to translate this phrase, I have been glorified by them. Some of your Bibles might translate it that way. Don Carson thinks we should translate it that way. But I think it's better to follow the King James and the New King James and the New Revised Standard and the ESV and the NASB and render this verse, I am glorified in them. Scholars like F.F. Bruce take that point of view, and I think he's right. We should hear Jesus saying, Father, I am glorified in those who you gave to me. While the disciples did glorify Jesus by believing his words and receiving his words and keeping his words, Jesus more so glorified himself in them by manifesting the Father to them, by teaching them the will and ways of the Father, by shepherding them in the world, by protecting them from all of their enemies, by keeping them in the Father's name while he was with them on the earth. Jesus was glorified in them by doing his work in them. Jesus was glorified in them by becoming everything to them. And he would remain everything to them forever and ever, which is why the NASB and the ESV and so many other translations uh, render this clause, I am, a present tense, I am glorified in them. Not just I have been, I was uh, in this past act, but I am forever glorified in these people. Indeed, beloved, when Jesus said in verses one and five, when he asked the Father to glorify him, he did have in mind the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. He did have those things in mind, but he also had in mind his work in the lives of the disciples. Jesus Christ would be and will forever be glorified in his disciples by completing his work in their lives, by taking those who were enemies of the state and turning them into fully functioning children of God. 
This is how Jesus is glorified in his people and how the Father is glorified in them as well. Oh, beloved, the joy, the joy that belongs to those who hear their Savior advocate for them in the presence of the Father and say, these ones truly believe. These ones truly belong to us. Oh, the joy that belongs to those who really listen and hear their Savior say that they belong to God the Father and that they belong to God the Son. Oh, the joy that belongs to those who hear their Savior say that He is glorified in them who were once completely lost in their sins, who were lost in the power of this world that was just too strong for them and in which they were swept up, who were subject to the power of Satan and all of his confusing lies who were alienated from the people and the promises of God, who were without God and therefore without hope in this world. Oh, the joy that belongs to people who used to be enemies of God and yet hear Jesus Christ say about them in the presence of the Father, Father, they belong to you. And Father, I am glorified in their lives. Oh, how I pray, beloved that we would take the time today to listen to what Jesus is saying and to take it in and to rejoice in what he has to say about all of his people. Imagine your life before you knew Christ. Imagine your life even right now. Imagine your future as you conceive it and then just realize when Jesus looks at you, one of the main things he has to say about you is I am glorified in that person because that person has put his or her faith in me. Oh, beloved, these things are so profound. May the Lord give us ears to hear. As for those first disciples, the time had come for Jesus to depart from them and to depart from this world. And so he continued in verse 11 and said this, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus didn't want to leave his own as orphans in the world, and so he asked his Father to keep his people in his name so that they could come into the fullness of his joy. That was his heart. And at this point in the New Testament, this is the only time where God the Father is ever addressed as Holy Father, and I don't think this is an accident. I think Jesus had several things in mind here, so let me just describe to you three reasons why I think Jesus called his Father Holy Father at this exact point. First of all, in the midst of an intimate and familiar dialogue with God that was being overheard by the disciples, I think Jesus wanted to show respect to the Father. This is really hard for us to understand because we do not live in a culture that values respect. And if you think we do live in a culture that values respect, I challenge you to get on a plane and go to India, go to Romania, go to almost anywhere else in the world and observe how people act toward one another. Right now I'm trying to learn Spanish and I've got a great teacher, Kim Handren, I get to be taught by her and I even get to kiss my Spanish teacher because she's my wife. But even embedded in the language is a way of talking with respect to people that you ought to show respect to. So many cultures are built on respect. Our culture is not built on respect. Jesus was trying to show his father respect. You see, the, the disciples were not used to hearing people pray like this. 
The disciples were not used to hearing people pray with such intimacy to God and calling him Father. So I think one of the reasons he said Holy Father is essentially to say infinitely worthy Father. Yes, yes, you are near to all who call upon your name. And yes, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be respected and honored. And so I, the Lord Jesus Christ even, I address you as Holy Father, respectable Father, honorable Father. Second reason that I think Jesus spoke of the Father in this way is because while he was in that upper room with the disciples, I believe that part of him was actually in the Holy of Holies with his Father. As I've put myself in Jesus' place and just to imagine what it would be like for him to pray that prayer, I believe that he had eyes to see the glory of his Father just like Isaiah did. But instead of being undone by the glory of the Father, Jesus was enthused because he shares in that very glory. But he wanted his disciples to see what was probably hidden to them. He wanted his disciples to know that they were in the presence of the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And so he said, Holy Father, is a way of saying, Glorious Father. You remember what Isaiah said when he saw the glory of God. He did not say glory, glory, glory. He said, Holy, Holy, Holy. Jesus is emphasizing the, the beauty, the magnitude of the being to whom he was speaking at the time. And then finally, number three, to be holy is to be set apart, is what the, the word literally means. In other words, to be holy is to be devoted to someone. Kim and I are holy to each other because we're devoted to one another in marriage. I as her husband and she as my wife. And God the Father is not only ultimately, but infinitely devoted to his son and infinitely devoted to his people. God the Father is absolutely set apart for his people. Or if I could put it in another word, God is faithful. God is faithful to his people. And in saying, holy Father, devoted Father, I think Jesus was essentially saying, infinitely faithful Father. Oh, infinitely worthy and glorious and faithful Father, please keep them in your name that you have given to me and that I have revealed to them. Now when Jesus asks the Father to keep the disciples in his name, He's essentially asking them to keep them by his power. This is the way the, the Bible talks about the name of God so often. So let me just read for you three places. Two quotes from David. First, David prayed, May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May the name of the God of Jacob be a, a shield around you, be power for you. May you have protection in the name of God. And then again he prayed, oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Vindicate me by your power. Vindicate me by your strength. Vindicate me by your grace. Let me be in your name that I might be safe. Which brings to mind Solomon's favorite, famous saying in Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a what? The name of the Lord is a, a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a place where the righteous can come in and be safe. The name of the Lord is a place where we can be protected from the designs and the desires of people who hate God and from Satan himself. The name of the Lord is a place where we can find freedom from our own flesh and our own remaining rebellion against God. The name of the Lord is the place of safety for the people of God. And Jesus wanted that safety for his people. Father, I'm leaving the earth now. So 
keep them in your name, Father. Keep them protected. Keep them safe. Keep them faithful. Keep them so that they will keep your word. This was, this was the heart of Jesus for the disciples, asking the Father to do what the Father already wanted to do. And the reason he prayed these things, not with desperation but with confidence, is because he knew something. He knew that the Father had actually given these people to him. The Father gave the disciples to the Son, and therefore the Son asked the Father to protect those who already belong to him. And and you'll notice at the end of verse 11, notice why Jesus asked for this. He said, so that they can share in the unity that belongs to the Father and the Son, so that they can be one even as we are one. I hope that you can have eyes to see here, beloved, that the reason God, Jesus wants the Father to protect you, to keep you safe in his name, is so that you can actually join in the unity that belongs to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ wants us to be one with God, one with each other, and safe from our enemies round about. Jesus Christ wants us to taste the beauty of the relational unity that he and the Father have enjoyed from forever and to forever. His aim is to bring us into the fountain of his joy by enfolding us into the depth of the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'll have eyes to see this. I pray that you'll grasp that even this morning, Jesus is seeking to take us by the hand and lead us into the center of the center of the delight of God for God so that we can enjoy his joy as well forever and ever. This is eternal life, Jesus said that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that the people of God would become one with God and with one another. This is eternal life, that we would be enfolded into the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, beloved, I pray that the glory of these things will not pass by you. I pray that the distractions of the day and and the concerns of your flesh will not keep you from hearing what Jesus had to say, but rather that you would take all the time you need to hear and take into your hearts what Jesus has for you and for me. With this in mind, Jesus continued in verse 12, and he prayed this, Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Beloved, here Jesus was only asking the Father to do what he had already done in the world, but he can no longer do because he was going back to the Father. While he was here, Jesus guarded his people, which means that he functioned in their lives like a soldier, like someone who was protecting them, or more to the point, drawing from John chapter 10, like a shepherd who cared for his father's flock. Jesus cared for God's people. By the words of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit and the desires of his own heart, Jesus protected all those who the Father had given to them, to him, so that not one of them was lost from the fold except the one he called the son of destruction, by which he clearly means Judas Iscariot. Now, if you look back in verse 6, you'll see that Jesus affirmed that the disciples had kept his word and then at the, verse, the end of verse 8, he essentially repeated this affirmation and said that they received and believed his word. They came to know many things through his words. The disciples kept the words of Christ. But here in verse 12, 
Jesus makes clear that the singular reason the disciples were able to keep his word is because he had kept them. Jesus had gathered them. Jesus had guarded them. Jesus had cared for them. Jesus had watched over them. And because Jesus kept them, they were able to keep the word. Of course, the disciples had a part to play, beloved, but Jesus' part was and is the decisive part. And if Jesus did not play his part, the disciples would not be able to play their part. In fact, their part is just a reflection of of Jesus' part. Now, I've shared this with you many times over the years, but one thing that fascinates me about our solar system is that when the light of the sun hits the earth, The earth absorbs a lot of that light, but it actually reflects light back, and a portion of the light that hits the earth actually makes it all the way back to the sun. If you were to stand on the sun and look at the earth, you wouldn't be able to perceive that light is coming to you because you'd be overwhelmed by the glory of the sun that you were on. But the truth of the matter is that a portion of the light that hits the earth actually makes it back to the sun. And this is just like the difference between Jesus' part in salvation and the disciples' part in salvation. The disciples have a part to play. They hear the word and receive the word and believe the word and keep the word, but all of that is only a reflection of the powerful light of the sun that is flooding upon their lives. And if the sun did not flood upon their lives, they would have nothing in themselves that could reflect faithfulness back to God. So yes, they had a part But the only reason the disciples kept the word is because Jesus Christ kept them. And how I pray that God will give us insight and joy as we ponder that truth. Now I want to take just a few more minutes and talk with you about Judas. Things here that Jesus says about him are serious and I want to make sure we have a moment to understand what's being said. The word here for lost, none of them was lost actually means to destroy or to be destroyed. In this case, it means to to be destroyed really more than to be lost. And the way in, in this context that one is destroyed or lost is by being separated from the flock of God so that you walk away from the grace of God and instead come under the eternal judgment of God. And the reason I say that is because the word that's used here for lost almost always refers to eternal judgment from God. Everywhere you look in the scripture, it's always referring to judgment. And then Jesus immediately repeats the word and applies it to Judas Iscariot. This is really hard to see in English because of the way most of your translations render the verse. But in the Greek text, here's how this verse reads. It says, No one has been destroyed except for the son of destruction. Same word. No one has been destroyed except for the son of destruction, which is a way of saying no one has come under the fierce judgment of God of those you have given me except for the son of judgment. To clarify that the loss of Judas was not a a failure on the part of the father or on the part of the son, Jesus added these really important words and said that this was so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now he probably had Psalm 41, nine in mind. If you'll look back with me real quick to John 13, 18, here's what Jesus said to the disciples in the hearing of Judas actually. John 13, 18, Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. There's Jesus' decisive part but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's Psalm 41.9. That's the scripture Jesus is talking about. 
And he's saying that scripture is going to be fulfilled. Now this repeated emphasis on the fulfillment of scripture does highlight and emphasize the place of the sovereignty of God over Judas and even over the rebellion of Judas. But I want to be clear that this repeated appeal to scripture does not deny or minimize the work of Satan in Judas's life or Judas's personal responsibility. Jesus is not saying that Judas was destined to do these things and that he had no choice in the matter. He's not saying that. As one Bible commentator put it, in the case of Judas, it was the devil who put it into his mind to betray Jesus, and it was Judas himself who willingly carried it through. Or as F.F. Bruce puts it, Judas was not lost against his will, but with his consent. Get this in your minds, beloved. It was written 900 years before he was born. But Judas chose the things that were written of him. This term, the son of destruction, then, is illustrative of the sovereignty of God over his life. It is. God called him the son of destruction 900 years before he was born. Can you imagine God looking at you and saying, here's the name I give to you, the son of judgment, the son of destruction, That's what God called Judas 900 years before he breathed a single breath. God knew this was coming. He was not surprised by it at all. God was in complete power over the life and the the rebellion of Judas. And yet this term, the son of destruction, is illustrative of Judas' character because Judas wanted what the scripture had already said about him. He wanted this. The reason Judas rebelled against Jesus, beloved, is because he loved the world more than Jesus. Plain and simple. He loved money, right? The reason Judas walked away from Jesus is because he sought his life in the world. And he heard with his very ears. He saw Jesus when Jesus said, don't seek your life from the world. He heard Jesus say, you can't serve God and money. But Judas said, forget that. Show me the money. He loved the world. He loved the things of the world. He wanted the world. And this is why he rejected Jesus. He did not reject Jesus because he was destined to do so and had no say in the matter. He did what was in his heart to do. And of course this was written because God is wise and God is in absolute control of everything. Judas inherited exactly what he deserved, even if these things were prophesied of him. Now it's possible that someone here today might be feeling a little bit like Judas right now. It's possible that some of you might feel like you're near to the people of God and near to the things of God, but you know that in the secrecy of your heart you love the world a lot more than you love God. You know that you've come close, but you haven't come close enough. You've come near, but you haven't bowed your life before God, and maybe, just maybe right now, the fear of God is settling upon you that you too might be doomed to be a son or a daughter of destruction. But I want to tell you that as, as long as you're breathing breath in this life, there is hope for you to come to Jesus Christ. Years ago, before I was a believer, I, I was never a Satanist, but I knew a lot of people who were because I was a drug addict, and in that world there's a lot of people who are into Satanism. And there was one friend of mine, after I came to Christ, that I was constantly sharing the gospel with him, and he kept telling me, no, I can't believe in God because there's been a curse put upon me that is a strong one and can't be broken. It's a permanent kind of curse. Whatever it was that he was told, I don't know. But this was his perception. He had been cursed in some irreversible way. So I told him, friend, that's a lie. 
And Satan is the father of lies, and everything that he says is a lie, and as long as you're breathing, as long as you're living, you can choose to submit your life to Christ, and I'm gonna keep praying that you'll do that. And it took some years, but that man actually did come to the place where he bowed his life before Jesus, and this very day, he's walking with Jesus, he's bearing fruit in Jesus. In fact, right now, he's getting ready because he's on the staff of a church now. He's out in California, he's getting ready to to work their worship service even as we speak because he found out that the devil's a liar, and he had the ability to bow his life before Christ by the grace of God in Christ. And so I wanna tell you, As long as you're living and breathing, there is hope for you to come to Jesus, and I pray that you'll do that today, not tomorrow. You don't know if you have tomorrow, and I pray that you will reject Judas's heart and reject his fate by humbling yourself before Jesus today. Since Judas was essentially of the world and not of God, Jesus' prayer did not apply to him, and Jesus' prayer does not apply to those who are like him, but as for his own, Jesus was praying for them, and here's why he was praying for them. Here's why he felt so confident in the things that he prayed for them. The Father had given these people to Jesus. The Father had given Jesus his very name. The Father had given Jesus his very words. The Father had given Jesus his very commission. And then the Father sent the Son into the world, and the Son obeyed the Father by proclaiming his words And when he proclaimed those words, people came to him, they kept the word, they received the word, they believed the word, they lived by the word. They kept the word because Jesus had kept them. And so now that his time of departure had come, Jesus simply prayed to his father with utter confidence, Father, please keep them. Please now do for them what I have done while I was here on the earth. Please cause them not only to remain in me, but to come into the center of the fountain of our delight. Oh, Father, make them one even as we are one. Bring them into the love of the Father for the Son and into the love of the Son for the Father. Oh, Father, give them a fullness of my joy. Beloved, this is eternal life. This is the unstoppable purpose of God in Jesus Christ for his own people. This is what Jesus longed for us to see and more so what he longs for us to experience in this life, namely his very joy. And I pray again that we'll take the time to meditate upon his words so that we'll have his joy. I pray that we will not settle for lesser joys. I pray that we will pursue God and his words with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. I pray that we will set aside less important things so that we can really meditate on what Jesus is saying here and receive what he has for us. I pray that we will hear the words of Jesus from chapter 10 when he says this. And in fact, if you would please just close your eyes and bow your heads with me. Listen to the words of Jesus about his own and then let me pray. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. They will never be destroyed. They will never be lost. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord Jesus, I thank you for praying this prayer in the hearing of your disciples. And I thank you for bringing this prayer to us now. I thank you for the grace that caused John to write this prayer down. I thank you for the grace that caused your people to preserve it for all these 2,000 years. 
And I pray, Father, that you would take my weakness in preaching now and display your great strength. I pray that you would give your people passion and desire so that they will meditate upon the things that you have said and receive the joy that you have in store for us. Oh, Father, please reveal to us your name through your words and give to us the fullness of your joy. We thank you for what you'll do. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.